Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, really a pleasure to have the opportunity to host not only you, but of course, one of the great figures in our world, President William Jefferson Clinton. I'm going to provide a brief introduction, show you a little video, and then we'll really get on with the star of the show, which is this remarkable man who is doing uh, really interesting things in the world. Um, first of all, I would like to thank the London School of Economics for hosting us. For a girl from Eastern Kentucky, I've ended up in some pretty unlikely places, and now that I've been here twice, I'm quite pleased with myself. <laughs> I'll also be availing myself of your fine university over at Oxford this summer for some summer school with my uncle, who is a, a minister. We're going to be taking some theology classes, and I have to say, you all do it really well around here. Um, a conversation with Bill Clinton is obviously taking place within the context of this International Family Planning Summit, which is being hosted by your government and the Gates Foundation. And it's a very timely one because with what was an appropriate emphasis on HIV AIDS and the global emergency that that virus has started and unfortunately promulgated for uh, several decades now, family planning fell off the international radar. And the attendant consequence of that has been a, a, an unfortunate and unnecessary continuation of the disempowerment of girls and women, especially the vulnerable, when it comes to regulating their own fertility. And we know that family planning saves lives. So the goal of this summit, and if you don't have these numbers ready on your lips, please incorporate them, make them part of your cocktail party chat because it's really important is to empower an additional 120 million girls and women of reproductive age by 2020 with a choice of family planning options. And those choices include long-lasting reversibles such as IUDs, the patch, injectables, pills. And what this will do, and I have just had surgery, so I have anesthesia brain, so I check my facts. And I would love to dazzle you and not have to be on book, but I'd rather get things right. This will help prevent 100 million unintended pregnancies. It will prevent 50 million abortions, a large percentage of those being unsafe abortions. It will prevent 200,000 maternal deaths and it will save the lives of three million newborn babies. And I just want to read to you, because it's so important when we talk about the progress we need to make, to emphasize also the progress that has already been made and the hope that exists in the world. So this year, 2012 alone, through family planning that some women of reproductive age do have, we are averting 218 million pregnancies. What's important to know about that is that's 55 million births. Not all these pregnancies go to birth. There are abortions, there are miscarriages, and there's other more mortality and morbidity that is strictly unavoidable. So thank you so much for being here within that context. But what obviously we're really here to do is celebrate President Clinton, his extraordinary foundation, the Clinton Global Initiative, and find out the inner workings of this brilliant mind and the foundation and how it's impacting so many parts of our world. I'm going to show you a video called How, because the first thing they do when they tackle a problem is ask the how question. So let's take a look at the video. Today we're faced with some pretty big questions. Like, how can we empower people economically? 
way that lifts poor countries as well as individual people? Or how can we fight climate change by making investments that are actually profitable in the long run? And how can we expand access to life-saving medicines and quality care in the developing world? It's not about what you want to do or why you want to do it. But how are you going to get it done? Every year, the Clinton Foundation brings together people from all around the world and all walks of life to answer one simple question. How are we going to turn our good intentions into real changes? And out of that one question come unique solutions that empower people around the globe to live their dreams and build a stronger future. Lucia Kenya. Slashing the cost of malaria medication means parents can afford to keep their children healthy and in school. Los Angeles, United States. Improving access to healthier foods enables students to lead more productive lives. Lucan Carre, Haiti. Backing solar-powered fish farms allows local communities to prosper while improving nutrition. Odar Mianchi, Cambodia. Support for reforestation helps protect the vegetation that provides the livelihood for others. For 10 years, the Clinton Foundation and its How process has built lasting systems that have changed hundreds of millions of lives for the better. When you work with others to develop sustainable solutions, you can make a real difference. And therefore, because you can, you should. How are you going to turn your good ideas into real action? I'm sure you noticed that there are a wide range of issues that CGI impacts, and that's because the mind on this guy is absolutely extraordinary. So without further ado, please help me welcoming the 42nd President of the United States and my friend, William Jefferson Clinton. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, uh, First, thank you, Ashley, for doing this, and I'd like to thank uh, Professor Calhoun and LSE for having me back here. I always feel like I'm an academic pretender when I'm at LSE, but I'm happy to be here. And I'd like to thank Simon and David Rubin and the Rubin Foundation for supporting our foundation and helping us to do things like this, uh, particularly in the UK. And the last thing I want to say before we get to questions is I I'd like to thank the government of the United Kingdom because DFID has been a good partner of ours in fighting malaria, AIDS, uh, and building healthcare delivery systems all around the world and they work with us because we get them a very, very high return on your tax dollars if you're British and doing that uh, particularly in Africa so I'm very grateful to be here. Well, may I do a piece of housekeeping with you first? Because we're going to talk, I'm going to ask you some questions, and then we have the opportunity to take questions through at Clinton tweet and use the hashtag, hashtag LSE Clinton. So I get completely lost when you start to talk. May I use a timer so that I don't monopolize this and we open it up to questions in about an hour? Is that okay? <laughs> and I'm going to live to tell about you. it. 
<laughs> Whatever you say. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. My husband needs to learn that line. <laughs> Congratulations so, on his big race. Thank you. By the way. Thank you. We appreciate that. If I could drive that fast, I'd have gone on a different line of work. <laughs> so in the video that we just watched, we saw that no matter what the problem is, your foundation is trying to solve it from the Holocaust of malaria medicines to deforestation in Cambodia. You do ask the how question. Please talk about this question, how it guides and informs your work. And is it sort of a guidance note for every issue that you tackle? Well, let, let's start with the thing that got us going. Uh, more than a decade ago, before there was a global fund on AIDS, TB, and malaria, before there was uh, the American PEPFAR program, there were only 200,000 people in developing countries and even middle-income countries who had AIDS and needed the medicine to stay alive who were getting it. And 130,000 of them were in Brazil because they had their own pharmaceutical industry and they could either produce generic medicine or use it to lever the prices down. So there were already five or six million people who needed the medicine to stay alive. Nobody was getting it. So in the beginning, I just was going around trying to raise money. And then it occurred to me that once we started looking at it, the, genetic, the generic AIDS medicine at the time was selling for about $500 a person a year, much less than we pay in the United States $10,000 at my, the AIDS clinic around the corner from my office in Harlem in New York. But still an enormous amount of money if you're a very poor country with a high infection rate and a low tax base. And so we examined this $500 and we realized that there was a business model behind it that seemed to be the only one available to Ranboxy and, and uh, Cipla and the other major suppliers of AIDS medicine, the generics. It was essentially a low-volume business, and so they needed a high profit margin because it was both low-volume and the payment was uncertain. And by the way, the delivery system wasn't so hot. So but basically it's the way if you were in a small town you would run a jewelry store business. I mean, you think about it. If you run a jewelry store, you have lots of uh, inventory because people want to look at different watches and rings and things. And you're, so you have to have a high profit margin. And besides the uh, payments uncertain, <laughs> someone might give back the engagement ring. <laughs> a wonderful American journalist had a, his first fiance give his engagement ring back, and he realized he didn't know what to do about it, so he wrote a fabulous book on the history of diamonds, turned it into something good. But anyway, it occurred to me that if we could get a guaranteed payment stream and improve the supply chain, we could turn this whole AIDS business into a low profit margin, very high volume, absolutely certain payment business. And I, it didn't just occur to me, it occurred to the guys that were working with me, beginning with Ira Magaziner, who was with me at Oxford over 40 years ago. We looked at it and we said, this doesn't make any sense, this business model. It was so disorganized that the Bahamas were paying $3,500 for this $500 medicine because it was going through two agents and no one knew what the price was. 
so we essentially redesigned the market. And I had then I was short. I hadn't been out of office long, so I went to these companies, and they were mostly Indian, one in South Africa, and they knew me, and the leaders of the countries knew me, and. I said, I give you my word, if you don't make more money doing it our way, we'll undo the contracts. But this is insane for you to have this kind of markup on a generic drug just because you're not getting paid and because the volume's so low. Then I went to first Ireland and Canada, two countries with whom I had very close relations and the leaders of the countries were still people who'd served with me and they were spending money on this. I said, I, I want you to give me each $20 million a year for five years, but I don't want you to give me the money. I won't touch a penny of it. I just want you to promise me that I can green light the money. And you pick the countries where you want the medicine to go, the AIDS medicine. But that will give me enough to get volume up enough to get prices way down. So we took the prices from 500 to 140 to 120 to 90 dollars. And then, all just rolling this out. Then when the old three pill a day regime was turned into a one pill a day, we immediately got that down to $200 and then started driving that down. The children's medication we took from $600, fewer ingredients but much smaller volume sales, down to 60. All because we ask how. And that's why I do a lot of work with the Gates Foundation. I know they did this, this wonderful conference with you because they are essentially, they like to fund things and then fund implementers. So we just started trying to figure out how to do that. And so we do it in lots of other ways um, on things like um, reducing carbon emissions. We, have, we had a contest a few years ago when I was working with a group called the C40 that actually started here in London when Ken Livingston was mayor but has been continued under the current mayor and is now chaired by the mayor of New York City to offer global certification to people who promise to build totally carbon neutral developments, zero emissions, residential, commercial, or mixed. And two of them are here. And we're about to get them financed, about to get going. But you really have to, I personally believe there's a lot to be said for figuring, helping people figure out how to do things. In the poor countries, normally it involves building systems they don't have, which make life predictable and results positive. In wealthy countries, and sometimes in rising countries, it normally means reforming systems or finding alternative ways of dealing with it because rigidity and self-interest have overcome advancing some public cause. So from there, the Clinton Global Initiative has within women's issues in particular, which of course is the focus of the current Family Planning Summit, resulted in 135 commitments with, a, with an estimated value of $1.7 billion. But that's just within the girls and women track. In total, since the foundation was begun, 2,100 commitments totaling $69.2 billion. From initially asking this question of how, 
being incredibly involved in the detail work, leveraging your contacts, relationships, personality, your brilliance. You mentioned something about helping poor countries build, I, whatever, I'm, I'm a bit of an adoring fan. Um, you, you, you talked about helping poor countries build infrastructure and systems. So take us to the beginning of CGI, now that we've heard some of these dazzling okay. figures about what you've done. Maybe starting with the so, Nevis story. Well, first I realized that I didn't have um, a big or a wealthy foundation, and never would, because I was interested in trying to save as many lives and create as many opportunities as possible. So I have about 1,400 people working in our foundation. We're in, uh, not counting the volunteers that are legion. And we operate in 40 countries, mostly doing healthcare work, healthcare and energy work, but we do work on um, agriculture. And we do a lot of work on, on uh, reforestation, carbon credits, waste to energy, a lot of that stuff. And then we have a major initiative in the United States against childhood obesity. But I realized that, and I have to go get money for all these things, and a lot of the donors like working with me because our overhead's lower than most other people. But no, I, nobody gave me $100 million. I don't have a big endowment. I just do this. I help. So the Gates Foundation is one of our best partners. They put millions of dollars into projects that we work on together every year, and we figure out how to do it. And, but I realized that, first of all, there were a huge number of people who cared about things that I cared about could never get into, and a huge number of people who knew how to do things that I didn't, neither I nor anyone working for me knew how to do. So that's how we started this global initiative. We just said, well, all the leading politicians show up in New York around the United Nations. So what if we had a conference there and we invited uh, NGOs, philanthropists, business people, and the leaders who show up, and we talked about these issues, but it was different. Everyone actually had to commit to do something, and then we would help them do it. Because other people, I, I think, you know, networks produce better decisions than you and I do alone in a closet. People know more things together. They figure out how to solve problems. So we started this meeting. I had no earthly idea if anybody would come to this. I mean, who ever heard of actually charging someone to come to a meeting so that they can make a commitment to spend more money, more time, more something else? <laughs> Go to Davos and ski, for God's sakes. Right? But turned out people wanted to be asked to come to a meeting where they made a commitment. And so we now have to flesh out the numbers that Ashley mentioned, we have the Clinton Global Initiative meets every year. Then we do one just on the American economy, which we will do until we return to full employment. We had one in Hong Kong for Asia, which I, and I had to suspend those while Hillary was Secretary of State for good reasons. You, in order to do one around the world, to make the economics work and keep the entry fee fairly low, you have to have sponsors. And if your wife is Secretary of State and you get sponsors in another country, they may be doing it just because they believe in it, but it opens up too many questions of conflicts of interest. So we suspended those. But if she leaves the State Department in January, then I expect we will have one in 2013 in Latin America 
and then another one shortly thereafter in Asia because they were interested in it. But the, the, then we have these full-time working groups that spun out of CGI. They meet all year long. And the most important thing is now our regular members, by the time they show up at the meeting, they have worked for a year on their new commitment. And they announce it and then set about implementing it. And it turns out people were dying to be asked to do something, but they wanted to make sure that they could answer the how question is. They wanted to make sure they weren't wasting their money or wasting their times or wasting their skills. And they found that if they got in a network of people who cared about this, they could figure out at least what the most likely successful path was. That's how it happened, and it just kind of grew like topsy. It just kept going. Is there anyone here who's ever been to a CGI convening? I highly yeah, recommend it. Here, well, right? we've got Kate, of course. It is an absolute and total ball. The first time I came for the fall meeting, it was it was social, it was inspiring, it was really stupendous. And I've had the privilege of being pointed to one of the CGI leads by the president, and my cohort is working. We started with rethinking refugees. Of course, we want to eradicate the underlying causes and conditions that create displacement, but we also wanted to make an immediate improvement in conditions in camps. I'm in Prague trying to star in a darn TV series, and I have to go to Congo with my CGI lead. Wasn't that an interesting out to, to negotiate in my contract? So when we say commitments and full-time working groups around the year, that's for real. So tell us a little bit about the people who show up. You're all about partnerships. You're about leveraging the private sector, civil society, having governments involved when they have the capacity. So for example, um, if there are folks here with a small business, what is their place in CGI? Well, I'll give you a great example. Of in, we have a Haiti working group headed by Dennis O'Brien, the chairman of Digicel. Digicel and Voila, the two major cell phone companies in Haiti, just got the last $3 million of Bill Gates's, Bill and Melinda's $10 million Gates Foundation challenge money for entrepreneurial advancement. Why? Because they are providing in the poorest country in the Caribbean banking services by cell phone. Now why is that important? Because 20% of Haiti's GDP comes from remittances by the Haitian diaspora in the US, Canada, France, and the Caribbean primarily. That's where most of the Haitian diaspora is. So a lot of the banks, uh, are, the bank's ownership is highly concentrated, not particularly competitive, and if you own one of these banks, you can make enough money every year just on the fees you earn converting what the Haitians send from the U.S. and Canada into gourds and giving it to the families. So when we started, it was hard to access normal banking services if you were an individual, and if you were a Haitian entrepreneur, it was virtually impossible to get an affordable small business loan. They started 45% in an economy where interest rates were virtually zero globally, you know. So when this happened, I also uh, got Carlos Slim and a Canadian friend of mine, Frank Juster, to agree to put $20 million into a small business loan problem. And we make small business loans at anything from three and a half to seven percent. And those two things, plus getting mentors to go down there and work with people, have created 
access to banking services for ordinary people, and access to small business loans. So it's one thing to be for it, and another thing to figure out how you're going to wade through the thicket of things to figure out how this can work. And what I think is going to happen is there's uh, some younger people in Haiti now involved in banking. Uh, did my friend Rolando Gonzalez Boonster there knows them all. And I think eventually, after a couple of years, when we show that this fund works, we'll be able to give this to a bank under a trust that will commit them essentially to have a small business loan facility. And for the first time ever, they will actually have affordable small business loans. And small business people, and I'll give you another example. I was trying to help in Harlem when I moved to New York and I moved into the neighborhood, the small business community, because it was an important part of the culture of Harlem. But there were these businesses that had been there 30 years, and they didn't even have their records computerized. They couldn't even monitor their inventory. They had no capacity to check with their customers to see whether their product uh, choices were going to keep them competitive. So at first I started, this is another thing, you have to be willing to stop when you're failing. Real important. So first, we got New York University Stern School of Business, the Black MBA Association, the African American people involved in property development, there was an association, and we did all this work in Harlem to essentially give, and, and uh, some of the big, accounting firms to essentially give Fortune 500-like business consulting services to small businesses. It worked for a few of them, but it was a totally unexpandable model. It was, the cost per business was too high. So instead, we, to go back to what you said, we went to Inc. Magazine, which is basically a small business magazine in America, an entrepreneurial magazine, and we made a partnership with them to find successful entrepreneurs who would work one-on-one -on -one with businesses, not just in Harlem, but in any other cities in America, we started to try to save them in the aftermath of the financial collapse and then help them to grow again. And that's proved to be just as successful, perhaps even slightly more successful, much less costly and much more rewarding. But that's the sort of thing that you, when you say you're gonna answer the how question, you have to acknowledge you're not going to get the right answer the first time, every time. And when you're failing, you've got to be willing to stop, either because it's just flat out not working or the cost per success is too high, given the resources you have to deploy on the problem. So that's a good example. And the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. Yeah. So it really speaks to a willingness to to have a, a rigorous inventory of the process and amend the process when necessary. So there are a lot of directions we could go now, but one of the things about which I have personally seen you become most excited was agriculture in Africa and the use of technology. Um, so tell us a little bit about that, and some people in this room may know that there is another impending famine crisis, particularly in the cell, which is a very underserved part of sub-Saharan Africa. So just tell us a little bit about your ag work and why you get so excited. Well, first, 
if the world, in fact, goes from 7 billion to 9 billion people by 2050, you, you got, we got to figure out how to feed them. And there are basically two competing models here. There is the let the people with money who can't produce enough food for themselves, China, Saudi Arabia, and others, go buy or rent the land and clean it off and get rid of these poor inefficient smallholder farms and go to a highly mechanized agriculture and maybe the country gets a good deal where the land is, maybe they don't. Um, or maximize the growth potential of agriculture in the places which could produce more food so that they first feed themselves and then have the capacity to export. Now, I'm oversimplifying this. There are lots of layers on this. But I strongly favor doing the latter because starting about 30 years ago, the whole developed world backed out of trying to support indigenous agricultural development in Africa and in the poorer countries of Latin America and Southeast Asia with this crazy theory that somehow they could just leapfrog that and go into the industrial era and all of us European and American farmers with our highly subsidized systems would kindly give them the food so they could make this leap. So there was a heavy dose of self-interest involved here too. But it's very complicated. I mean, you know, you see it in the severe water problems that the Chinese are now having. There are lots of examples of this. So I just thought we would start on a small basis and, um, in Africa and just see what was possible. So we started looking at these farmers in uh, Malawi and Rwanda and Tanzania and other places to see what they were doing. And I remember the, uh, I went to Rwanda first to help them with their healthcare system. And so we went out and talked to some of these farmers and I got down and started digging in the soil and this guy, this farmer started laughing and he said, you know, he says, many Westerners come here and tell us they're going to give us money to do great things. You're the first one that ever got down on his knees and dug in the soil. I said, well, that's because I lived on a small farm like yours when I was a kid. And we started talking. And what we found was that if you did the equivalent of what we did with AIDS drugs, that is, if you got scale buying up with good seeds, good fertilizer, you help people manage the pest, and most important of all, if you just found a way to store the food and take it to market, you would more than double the income of virtually every smallholder farmer and virtually every poor country in Africa. And you could therefore dramatically increase the production. The one thing the farmers have done a good job of there is preserving the topsoil. In most countries, there's been very little you know, destruction of topsoil. And a couple of years, so we started working there. And the worst we've done anywhere is to double farm income. That's the, the, the poorest performance. 
I consider that a failure, actually, if we only double farm income, because in really poor places where there are no roads and no either, uh, and the farmers not only have no access to mechanized transportation, they don't have their own access to animal-drawn transportation. They give up half their farm produce price just to take the food to market. So they lose half their income right off the bat for someone else to take it to market. And the minute it gets on the cart, they lose control over the quality of the food when it arrives at the market and the whole nine yards. So we said, well, the worst we could do is at least take the food to market for them. So we, I, I started getting enough money to take the food to market. And we backed up into that into more economical seeds, more economical fertilizer, diversification of crop growing practices, food processing operations, and on and on and on. Uh, but I'll just give you one example. All these famines in the Horn of Africa. You know that's uh, Somalia, which is riven by strife, northern Kenya, Djibouti, and extreme eastern Ethiopia east and south of Addis. Most of the farming area in Ethiopia is south and west of Addis. But if you go there in most years, you will see what great farmers the Ethiopians are, what a bumper crop they have, how if they had storage, cooperative marking, they could transfer a lot of that food there. And the rest of the world that keeps sending food in there could finance the transport of the food east and drastically undermine the, the reduce the number of severe famines in the Horn of Africa. And we just keep spending more and more money on the same emergency bailout instead of trying to create circumstances in the region which would enable them to feed themselves and even to deal with their own emergencies better. So even though this is a small part of what my foundation does, I think <clears throat> given what's happening to population and the need, I think, for sustainable agriculture instead of things that use more resources on an unsustainable basis, I think it might have the biggest potential for copying or replication of anything we do. It's just crazy what these people are up against. It's nuts. And every place I have gone when I worked in the tsunami area in Indonesia, in Banda Aceh after the tsunami, uh, and, and all through uh, the tsunami-affected areas, and then all the stuff we do in Africa, and everything we're doing in Haiti now, trying to bring the mango crop back. Forty percent of Haiti's mango crop is lost every year even though every mango grown in Haiti can be sold on the street at high dollar in New York City and our open markets in Manhattan alone, we can move the whole crop and give them a lot of money. Forty percent of the crop is never taken there because when the mangoes come off the tree, they are so bruised by the time they get to the packing and shaping that they just have to be sold on the street in Port-au-Prince, which is nice for them. They get the mangoes but they have to sell it for like a third the price. And I could give you, if we had uh, lots of other examples. There was a picture, I don't know if you saw in the little film, of Valentin Abe, who is the 
my hero. He's from Cote d'Ivoire. He had a Fulbright scholarship in marine biology to the University of California at Berkeley, and he turned it down. First person from Cote d'Ivoire ever to get one. They said, Valentin, how can you do this? You can win a Nobel Prize. You're a genius. Blah, blah. He said, because I don't care about winning a Nobel Prize, I want to feed poor people. And I want to, he says, eventually we're going to have to grow fish in a more responsible way. So I want to go to Auburn University because they know how to grow fish. True story. So then he decides to move to Haiti. And the entire tilapia operation he runs now in two big centers is entirely solar powered. The fish are kept cold by generators powered by solar power. And Haiti has a huge protein shortage. And the only thing he doesn't economize on is food. He feeds them organic food made in Virginia, the most expensive fish food you can buy. He said, I'm tired of four people being guinea pigs for the absolute dreck that fish are fed around the world. And I intend to do this. Everything else, he's got lower cost of production than anything in the world except for the feed. And all the farmers more than double their income working with him. So I'm just saying that there, it's a big mistake to give up on smallholder farmers in the developing world, thinking somehow we can leapfrog this. We need to go back to growing food and let people be self-sufficient. Then if we need some bigger production, then if we need to do something else to feed the world, we can cross that bridge when we come to it. But it is wrong to tear up people's centuries-old lifestyles and patterns before you even know whether what they're doing can be made economically viable. My experience is that there's an almost unlimited ability to increase their economic potential. Otherwise, I don't have strong feelings on this subject. It's actually personally one of the questions I wanted to ask you, and maybe we'll defer that for a little while, but you know, we're, we are familiar with your post-presidential career, which is becoming one of the most impressive in terms of our presidents who have left public office and gone on to remain uh, very dynamic citizens of a changing world. And, you know, what role does your, does your faith, does your strong feelings, does your morality, your ethics play in all of this? You, I mean, as you've seen, meaning the audience, your interests really know no bounds. How, how do you keep going and what sustains you? Well, first of all, if you think about the life I've had and the improbable life I've had, there have only been two governors of tiny states ever elected president of the United States. The odds of my ever becoming president were one in tens of millions or something, ridiculous. And I think that I would be kind of a reprobate if I didn't do this. Secondly, I don't play golf well enough to play on the tour. <laughs> I don't play my saxophone well enough to make a living at it anymore. And I love this. This is fun. I don't really, you know, this is not a selfless deal. I have a lot of fun doing this. I find this immensely rewarding. But most, uh, the third reason is I believe that we moved into an era, maybe just in the nick of time, 
from an economy that is based on information technology to an economy based on information technology, as well as all the old traditional elements, at a time when the world has become completely interdependent, but we can't make up our mind what that interdependence is going to look like. Interdependence just simply means you can't get a divorce. <laughs> That's all it means. You can't get away from each other. But it might be positive, it might be negative, it might be both. But to pretend that the United States and China are not going to share the future is nuts. Or the U.S. and India, or Europe, and you pick, fill in the blanks. So the world now is awash in a kaleidoscope of questions that all come down to this. Are we going to share the future or try to take it away? from someone else? Will we adopt a conflict model or a cooperation model to resolve our differences and to meet our own objectives? And I basically believe in a world that is where growth and opportunity and even basic humanity is drastically constrained by severe inequality and the unavailability of jobs that pay an affordable living by instability that is brought on not only the consequences and aftermath of terror, but the financial crisis, and by a totally unsustainable use of resources because of climate change and local resource depletion, the only thing that makes sense is to try to develop a path to a shared future where you have shared responsibilities and shared prosperity and where people respect their differences but think their common humanity matters more. No other strategy will work. The only place conflict still works is in politics. Constant conflict. But in the real world what works is creative cooperation. And I do this first because I think I should. I'm essentially in spite of my happy-go-lucky demeanor, a Calvinist at heart. You know, I'd feel guilty if I didn't do it. But mostly I do it because I think I'm pretty good at it, and I love it. And it's fun. It's more fun than anything else I could do. And I think I'm morally bound to do it because I don't think we have any other way in the future. I, I don't want my daughter and the grandchildren I hope to have and all of you young people here to live in some sort of science fiction uh, world that is bleak and conflict driven. It's just not necessary. And I think the 21st century is either going to be the most interesting time in human history or it's going to be pretty bleak. And I don't think that we've decided yet. But more than the specifics is the attitude. Nobody knows everything. Everybody's wrong sometimes. And nobody's wrong all the time. That's my problem. I'm having this fight with a, uh, all the time with the Tea Party crowd in America. I say, you know, they think they're all right and it's going to be my way or the highway. And I said, look, a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> and, and nobody's right all the time. And we're all compelled to spend our poor little existence fleeting through time 
between the extreme of being right more than twice a day and not being right all the time. If we could have that attitude and value everybody, we have a chance to get through the thickets that await us. But I, that's why I do this. I, I do, I think, I really do believe it's a great time to be alive, but we haven't made this fundamental decision about whether we're going to share the future or fight over it. Well, how about we uh, see what sort of interesting questions might come from the audience? And a reminder, you may tweet your question to at Clinton tweet, hashtag LSE Clinton. So we have a couple of microphones, I believe. What we'll do is allow three people at a time to ask questions. Please, uh, it's, I know it's hard, but constrain yourself and just ask succinct questions. So we'll do a mixture of this gentleman will go first in the purple shirt, please. And then the mic upstairs, if you could be preparing the next person, the gentleman with the blue shirt in the back row. And we're all about uh, sharing. So then this lady right here. Okay, gentlemen, please. Hi, uh, my name is Stanley Grossman. I'm in Democrats Abroad. Um, so you mentioned health care and a, a very important problem in Africa is, is malaria. And in the U.S., we have a ban on DDT, rightfully so, uh, but it's pretty, pretty well accepted that, malaria, that DDT can destroy the malaria, uh, mosquitoes, at least for a generation, and the environmental cost is probably less, in my view, than the tens of millions of children who die from malaria every year. Is, how do you make, make that balance? Great question. Now, is this format okay with you, where we get three and then... Go, or do you want to do one? Okay. Well, so then, let me do one at a time, real okay. quick. Uh, it's better. Uh, you're young. You can remember three questions at once. <laughs> uh, I actually don't have a definitive opinion about that because I don't think I know enough. But I, I'm old enough to have been alive when we use a lot of DDT in America. Uh, I think that. If, if the risk factors seem low, it's a good thing to do. But I have done a lot of work on malaria, particularly on, thanks to the Gates Foundation, on, how, on finding economies of pricing in the artemisinin-based medicine that's more likely to work, and on delivery systems, healthcare delivery systems. And I believe we can wipe it out. But the one thing that is, frustrating is that the malaria tends to mutate fairly quickly into very resistant strains. So it might be worth taking a look at whether a strategy that included DDT could knock it all out for all practical purposes in a shorter time frame. But you have to be careful when you do that because it's like all this talk about the new you know, a mosquito that will devour others and all that, all this sort of stuff. You have to understand the, um, the evolutionary properties of the adversary with which you're dealing and try to calculate what the risks of doing something are if it fails and if, in fact, a defense is erected against whatever strategy you're doing. But based on what I have read, I tend to come down where you are, but I don't know enough to have a definitive opinion. 
And I would be remiss, Dan, if I just didn't say briefly, because I am on the board of Population Services International, and some of the work that the President referred to is about distributing long-lasting insecticide-treated nets. And what that can do is improve the private sector, as well as create delivery systems for other kinds of um, health impact, for example, uh, rehydration salts after episodes of diarrhea. So while there may be a combination of these two, it really shouldn't be just one or the other because distributing and keeping up with nets has other positive effects sometimes in ways that at this time we can't even anticipate. And the question upstairs from the gentleman. Yes, thank you. Um, my name is Stefan Wisbauer. Um, the countries that fall most behind in achieving the Millennium Development Goals are those that suffer from conflict. Um, you just mentioned conflict. Um, my how question is this, how do we transform the way we deal or manage conflict in this world? Because I think the current methods are overall fairly uninspiring and ineffective, it would seem. And um, would you be interested in having a more detailed uh, conversation about this? And we just extended this to about 11.30 tonight. <laughs> yeah, sure I would, but the, the the real issue that for all outsiders trying to minimize conflict within a country is, how, you know, how do you do it? And the answer is it's different in different places. But I think that um, if there are people within the country who genuinely are committed to share the future. The first thing you have to decide is, and it normally depends on the culture of the country and how many people have been killed, is, is there a conflict rec resolution mechanism that throws the whole issue into the future sooner rather than later? For example, the most classic example is Mandela and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. But if you look at the Rwandan situation where they did have an international criminal court uh, referral system for the people that had ordered the deaths of thousands and thousands of people, but everybody else was handled by the local, in effect, informal court system. And the Rwandans said, we can't afford to build a prison system. We can't afford to waste money in building a judicial system. We've got to build an economic system, an education system, a healthcare system. We've got to put the country back together again. So we're going to do that. Uh, if you have to stop the fight first if there's fighting and you have to stop it from the outside in without any support it's very difficult to do the more you got going for you inside the easier it is if then you have to try to build the country the ability of outsiders to do that is directly proportional to the willingness of the people who won the conflict um, to let go of the past. And it's very hard for an outsider to tell somebody they should let go, you know, but we all admire people like Mandela and the South Africans and the Rwandan process when they do let go, but it's very hard for the rest of us to do it. Once they make those two decisions, once you stop the violence and get the let go, then the rest of us, all we have to do is to figure out what we can do to promote win-win outcomes for the people who live there. 
And there's a very good documentary about the informal traditional courts in Rwanda that the president referred to. I don't know how do you pronounce it, but it's G-A-C-A-C-A, -A -A, and it was made by a filmmaker from Louisville, Kentucky. You can find that. And also Abigail Disney's Women, War, and Peace documentary series, Five Part, shows the role that women can play both in preventing and resolving conflict that is absolutely or seems intractable, and I'd highly recommend those. We're going to take a question from this lady, and then we have two that have been tweeted. Great. All right. Thank you. Um, I'm Emily Harding, and I think you've touched on this a little bit already, but you mentioned that the decision is whether or not we share the future or fight over it. And I was wondering, uh, in your opinion, what would you look for that would tell you whether or not a decision has been made? Oh, I wouldn't think about it like that. That is, I think the decision is made and remade millions of times every day all over the world. Think about how you feel every morning when you wake up. It's almost like inside you there are scales, like the scales of justice. And some days you wake up feeling pretty good and the scales of hope are outweighing the scales of fear. And Someday, maybe you got bad allergies or something, and you wake up feeling terrible, and it's three hours before you have a positive thought. Maybe not you, but it's true of me. And <laughs> so all I'm saying is I, I think the real question is, do you have a way in to make the case? And are there people in a country who will help you make the case? And if so, it's worth a try. But this is a question that is asked and re-asked and answered, and sometimes by people who've had massive losses in their own families, they answer it one way one hour and one way another hour. This is, a, this is a process. This is not, you know, people don't have like a settled view in their mind and a settled view in their spirit and, oh, then you get a green light and you go in and make everything good happen. Now, once they get to that point, if you look at Rwanda, for example, I know there have been a lot of problems with Rwanda uh, with political dissent and all that, but one of the things they're very good at is using NGOs. And the reason they're good at using NGOs is they're so over most of the fights that you would have expected to take a decade to deal with, so they think about how everybody can help. So I, I, but I don't think you will. In most places, if a lot of people died and a big percentage of the families were affected, you won't find that. So for example, it didn't bother me in Egypt that there were people screaming they wanted justice. What bothered me in the whole Egypt, run up the Egyptian election work, there weren't enough people saying, now wait a minute, is this really the best use of our time and energy and heart? Do, is getting uh, even or having retribution or even doing justice as important as figuring out how these 400,000 kids that come out of college every year are gonna be, are gonna have jobs? It's, it's, it's the debate. I don't think you get the whole answer. The circumstances in Rwanda and South Africa were uncommonly beneficial for a quicker answer. But uh, what I would look for is not the answer. I would look for the opportunity, the opportunity to push it in the right direction. We have a wonderful question from Ronnie Foreman who asks, what role do recent university grads play in promoting entrepreneurship and economic growth? The answer to that, it depends on what you decide to do with your degree. 
and with your talents. That is, if um, first you can be one, <laughs> you can be an entrepreneur, or you can go to work for an NGO and try to help promote it, and you can bring what you have learned to other people. Um, I work with a young man in Haiti who went there as a teacher in the Peace Corps, fell in love with the country, and decided to stay and help people get an education in Haiti and then become contributors to Haitian society once they got out. And he discovered that one of the great advantages Haiti had over many uh, African countries at the same level of per capita income was they had before the earthquake pretty much kept their higher education network intact. And if you got a university education in Haiti as opposed to in another country, you were much more likely to stay there. And so he went to work on getting scholarships for the best students in all the schools to go to school there and then have jobs when they got out. Uh, I think the, the third thing that recent university grads can do, besides either working for an NGO or doing their own entrepreneurship, is to think about um, going to work for a company that has integrated social entrepreneurship into its mission instead of thinking of it as something separate. I mean, if you look at, for example, what a lot of these companies in Haiti are doing now that have been there a while, like the phone companies, it, they think that they can't function as phone companies unless they're creating more entrepreneurs. Dennis O'Brien once told me that the Haitian kids that showed, sold his time card on the streets in Port-au-Prince were the best entrepreneurs he'd met anywhere in the world. So I think you have three options, the person who asked the question. You can become an entrepreneur, learn how to do it, and then when you succeed or fail or both, help other people to do it. You can go to work for an NGO and try to take your skills and bring it to people who need it. Or you can work for a company that has a mission statement. Like Procter & Gamble, for example, whose little water tablets cost 10 cents. For 10 cents, you can clean enough water to feed a family of four for four days. And their mission, their corporate mission, is to save one life an hour somewhere in the world every hour of every day for as long as they exist forever. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Just on the side, yeah, we want to make money for our shareholders and everything, but our social mission is to at least save one life an hour every day for the rest of time, as long as we exist. So if I were 24 years old and had an MBA and was interested, in, I'd want to work for a company like that. And I'd want to say, look, I'll do whatever you want, but can I have a few hours a week assignment to advance this? And the Procter & Gamble is a perfect example because it speaks to what we were discussing earlier in terms of partnership because their distribution partner on the ground in most countries is PSI. And so I've had the pleasure of seeing these young entrepreneurs who maybe were already selling cell phones or conducting other business in crowded markets and they're reached by PSI staff who sensitize them as to the importance and ease of purifying water before consumption and then they're able to sell it at you know we provide it at a highly subsidized price they make a little profit and families have safe drinking water averting diarrheal disease which is one of the largest killers in the world of children under five 
So it's a perfect example. So we have a question from Clarence Chen, really good one. How is the Clinton Climate Initiative engaging climate skeptics to take action? <laughs> um, my strategy on that is very simple. You know, some people who are climate skeptics or climate skeptics because it's in their interest to be. And they just want to preserve the old energy economy for as long as they can. There's not much I can do about that. But what I am trying to do literally all the time is to prove that saving the planet is better economics than burning it up. Not 10 or 20 or 50 years from now, now. And there aren't, there are a lot of climate skeptics, but their their reasonings are being chipped away. We lost, uh, we had a very reputable scientist actually in the United States. It was a professor at Berkeley, physicist, who was a climate skeptic, and he had a very sensible argument. He said, "I think they may be aggravating, exaggerating the extent to which." A human activity is causing exorbitant levels of warming because he said, I believe too many of these temperature measurements are taken in or near urban areas which are warmer than rural areas. Which is, that's a factually true statement, by the way. They are. I mean, you know, if you work in New York City like I do and you live in a little town north of New York, a lot of times when you get out of the car, it's 10 degrees warmer than it was when you got in. So the, the Koch brothers who you may know are among Governor Romney's biggest supporters and big climate deniers, they spent a fortune funding this test by this guy. His name is Richard Mueller to check all these alleged biases. So the day came last spring when Mr. Mueller, Professor Mueller, came before the committee in the House of Representatives dominated by people who agreed with his climate skepticism. And he said, okay, I did it, and I'm grateful that I had a chance to do this. I took 1.3 billion temperature measurements, and I was wrong, and they're right. And you could have heard a pin drop. Because they looked at him like, you fool, that's not what we paid you to say. <laughs> We're supposed to get a guy from Berkeley who tells them what we want to hear. And so you're not going to get those people, okay? The people who, but there are a lot of people who have a different view. Their view is, look, this may be bad, it may be not, but God Almighty, the world's coming apart at the seams economically, and we got other fish to fry. We have to deal with other things. Those people, you must prove it is good economics to change the way we pursue, produce, and consume energy. Like we worked. Uh, the C40 in London, London is retrofitted about 86 of their public buildings. Houston's about to do all of them and about 300 schools. We're doing hundreds of schools in <coughs> Rio and Sao Paulo. Uh, Sao Paulo has at their two biggest landfills electric generating capacity. Um, I could give you lots and lots of other examples. We just, uh, Paul Farmer and Partners in Health just built a teaching hospital outside of Port-au-Prince in Haiti that when 
fully completed. It's open now. The hospital is. We'll have 1,800 solar panels. It'll be in the poorest country in the Caribbean. We'll have the biggest solar building in the Caribbean, and it will produce enough excess power to feed back into the grid. We're trying to connect the grids of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. I think I was just down there last week. I think we finally got it. And then you could rationally apportion throughout the whole island wind and solar and figure out how it should be done. But uh, whether you're producing or conserving, you have to do it in a way that proves is good economics. The other thing I think that has been underappreciated is this scientific study which says we could slow the rate of warming by 50% and the rate of warming in the Arctic region by two-thirds and therefore buy ourselves 20 more years to solve this problem if we went aggressively after the more rapidly dispersing greenhouse gases, methane, black carbon, and hydro and chlorofluorocarbons. And uh, best way to do that is to, on the methane, obviously, it's urban landfills or urban trash and lack of landfills and agriculture. And uh, black carbon is basically burning things we shouldn't to cook. And there are strategies to do that. But the good news, if you do that, they dissipate in the atmosphere much quicker than carbon. I also think, though, I'll give you a lot, there are lots of things we could be doing with carbon. If America shut down just the 10% of its coal-fired plants that are oldest, just the oldest 10%. That's over 30% of the emissions we get from burning coal. Germany and Denmark, even though Germany, a couple of Saturdays ago, produced 22 gigawatts of solar power, which you got some of in your mill, right? It's the first country in the history of the world ever produced 22 gigawatts of solar power on a single day. And uh, in Germany, the sun shines on average as much as it does in London. <laughs> so this is no mean feat, right? And the Deutsche Bank, not Greenpeace, Deutsche Bank, says that they netted 300,000 jobs from this endeavor with all the subsidies and everything. So I, I think that we need what I do to try to overcome the climate skeptics is figure out how to solve the financing problems because fundamentally all the financing problems look alike. Whether you're dealing with clean energy or energy efficiency, the costs are all up front, the savings are all in the back. If you build a coal-fired power plant in America, I'll come back to that, if you build a coal-fired plant, it's simple, it's a just say yes process. You go to the state regulator and say, we need more electricity, can I build a plant? They say yes, boom. You go find one contractor. How would you like to build my coal-fired plant? You know you will be paid because I got approval to build it. Yes, boom. The contractor goes and you find one supplier of coal. Will you send me the coal for 20 years at this price with this variation? Yes, boom. Over and done with, all ultimately paid for by the ratepayers, three decisions. If instead you decide that you can create even more power, cleaner, by retrofitting all the buildings in the service area, you got a lot of moving parts there, right? You got to figure out how to finance it, how they're going to pay it off. It's got to be a just say yes system. It's a lousy economy. So you have to be able to pay only from your utility savings. And you have to have enough certified contractors and materials that they know what the hell they're doing. 
So in all these, there's the same. It's lots of parts versus a few. Doing what you know versus doing what you know is right. And then, you know, working out the financing. But it's a great deal. Once you pay for it, it's all free. Whether it's clean energy or, or efficiency. So I, there are ways, to, the way to deal with the skeptics is to, that's why I don't, I tr every now and then I'll give a speech on this. I'm going up to Lord Rothschild's uh, environmental conference at Oxford. But I try, not, I try not to give many speeches on this energy stuff, the environment. I just try to do one project after another. And I figure if we just keep lining them up and pushing them down and lining them up and pushing them down, at some point denial will no longer be an effective strategy. And that's what I recommend to you. Do something, no matter how small it is. And denial stands for don't even know I am lying. <laughs> and the step at which most people don't want to look after that simple rubber stamping of yeses that the president mentioned is then how the coal is extracted because these days it's mountaintop removal coal mining which is strip mining on steroids you know we we love one another but we have a very slight difference he's a redneck i'm a hillbilly and in eastern kentucky they've literally blown up 500 mountains and buried 2,000 miles of streams all of this irreparable damage you know not to mention the seed stock which is of incalculable value. That area reforested the whole of North America after the last ice age. Have you ever heard of it? When I gave a, a talk on it at, at, um, in one of my classes at Harvard Public Health, um, all of the students from outside of North America came running up saying, where is this happening? And I said, it's happening in Kentucky. And they could not believe it was happening in the United States. Yeah. So thank God for the strengthened Environmental Protection Agency, but it's still a very difficult thing that absolutely has to come to a stop. Good op-ed on, on the New York Times, day before yesterday. Moving on, next question. But so, uh, how, me, so, if I could just give you one other thing on this. One of the things that I think should be done is we should try to get the coal industry and the electric people, electric companies, in this. That's, you know, that's what I did with the AIDS drug thing. We got the people in it. And there is now technology which is cheap. For a machine that costs $30 million, for which you get an accelerated write-off in the green energy tax cuts that President Obama has passed, you can produce wood pellets from wood waste are from sustainable forests that will burn just like coal and coal-fired power plants. So when the, that's what I started doing. I lost my train of thought. But the, the Germans, in spite of all their successes, feel that they can't both shut their nuclear plants and shut all their coal plants. So they have ordered from a friend of mine who runs a, a plant like this in Virginia, right near the port, so it's cheap wood pellets from wood waste and sustainable forests in America, and they're just going to take 20% of the coal out of the plant. And the Danes are doing the same thing to meet the European 2020 targets. And that should be done, you know, in America. We, we need to back America out of this. They, they just, this mountaintop mining is, you know, they just can't keep doing this. This has largely been done in the last decade, and it's been a lot of desperate people in West Virginia and Kentucky that think they have no other way to make a living. And um, the consequences are terrible, but the aggregate effect on climate change is bad. But there are ways 
that you can get people to do this. We've got, I'm, I've been working for five years now trying to get every utility in America to finance their own energy efficiency projects. So, because I tell them it's just like buying a, when we redid the New Year, the Empire State Building, it's like building a small power plant and giving free power to the company, right, to the utility, so they can finance growth with no more emissions. And, you know, it's a, that also should be a big part of this. If you can convince people that what they're doing is not only horrible for the environment today and tomorrow, but horrible for their own interests, and there's a more cost-effective way for them to advance their own interests, I think that would make a big difference. Let's try to take a question from someone under the age of 30. Under the age of 30? Yeah. With a scarf in the middle? That's a great Hi, I'm a graduate student at LC, and I was wondering, like, I think you're doing a lot of great stuff and a lot of great ideas, but don't you think you're doing too much topics to be efficient? Like, Professor Yunus was here um, last year and talked about what he tries to do in Bangladesh, and that's just one topic, and he can't solve it with the microfinance? Yeah, I do, but I, I, I don't do, I get, I, I turn down more things than I do, but I think the things that I have done to scale, right, are in healthcare, in AIDS, malaria, and putting up healthcare systems all over the world. That's a huge operation. We're in 15,000 schools in America on my childhood obesity thing, and we made a deal with the soft drink industry that cut by 88% the calories from sugar drinks going into the bodies of children in school there. That's to scale. And then the Clinton Global Initiative is to scale just because we involve other people and help them to figure out how to do what they want to do. These other, I think eventually my climate change thing will go to scale if I can convince uh, the UNDP and some other people to try to let me make the Caribbean America's first clean energy lake because they pay the highest electric rates in the world for basically heavy oil and diesel, and they could all be energy self-sufficient with clean energy. Those would all be big things to scale. Uh, the other things I do, because I have to do some things in my neighborhood and I want to be a good citizen, are because I think that if I can do them, someone else might take them to scale. That's why I do this smallholder farming thing, because I think I don't have the money and my foundation and don't have any idea where I could get it to do what I would otherwise be inclined to do on this. But I think it is so important not to give up on environmentally sustainable smallholder farming and giving people a chance to feed themselves that I, that I keep those things going because I think they're worth doing. I also, by the way, have a school, a graduate school with a school that's uh, public service. It's the only place in America you can get a degree in public service, not public policy. And half of their time is spent in the field doing, half the time in the classroom studying, half the time in the field doing. But that's why I, it's, it's not as ramshackle as it might seem at first. <laughs> we are unfortunately coming toward the end of our time. You see there are two really good questions here and there are hands still raised. Yeah, Take it. 
this is really smart. Charlie Beckett tweeted, a billion children go to bed hungry every night, a billion are obese. Is there a connection? There sure is. One's on one side of the knife of poverty and one's just over the other edge. If you're really, really poor, you'll be hungry because you can't buy food, right? Or produced enough. Even in America, you see the obesity rates are much more concentrated among people who are just a little better off, but they have almost no disposable income. They, they're, they are normally children in single-parent homes. Um, they don't spend time, and no one tries to help them preparing food that is nutritious. And so, and desperate mothers with a bunch of kids buy food that's high in bulk and caloric content, low in nutritional value, and it starts this whole spiral of unhealthy eating and has a lot to do with the way we produce and distribute food and the way we put the things that we process into it, but a lot to do with how many people there are in the whole world today who are working like crazy for marginal incomes in busy lives that don't have the space for measured eating. And you see this, by the way, not just in America, but that's very smart. There is a huge connection between the obesity problem and the hunger problem. How do we increase scientific research capacity in Africa? Will it make a difference? The answer to that, will it make a difference, depends on how good it is, I guess. But yes, I think what you have to do in Africa is either rebuild Africa's system of higher education, which basically was decimated by the end of colonialism and what happened afterward, or we have to have some donors willing to create in Africa the kind of multinational university complexes that you see now in uh, Dubai and Qatar and Abu Dhabi that places like LSE and other places are only too happy to do because rich people that live there pay you to come. And so governments or other multinational organizations, they, look, I, I'm not being critical here. Most people, my daughter helped NYU build their school in Abu Dhabi. But they, most of these places would be only too happy to go to Nairobi too if somebody would help to finance it. So I think, but we've got, we, there ought to be more research there because you could ask me a hundred questions about the pitch I just made for smallholder farms that I could not answer in terms of the soil differences and the crop products and the distribution variances and all of that. So yes, it ought to be done. We'll take one more from the audience, the most. See that lady up? Right She's been so patient all night. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, my humble question, my name is Amanda, a uh, very humble question. Um, in Rio, uh, the, the discussions um, drew the lines on sustainable development um, uh, according to geographical zones. So the EU on the one side, the US on the one side, and the G77 plus China. 
listening to you speak, I was getting really very hopeful that there is a game changer um, uh, on, on making decisions on sustainable development, on poverty issues, on inequality and injustice based on uh, the legacy for our great-great-grandchildren and so on. But Rio didn't give me that confidence. So um, uh, my question to you is, what is specifically the game changer that's, that uh, I and we as civil society or uh, companies or wherever we're coming from can really um, take on and how do we go about changing that? I, well, can, can I ask you a second question? Yeah, where are you from by the way? Uh, I'm from Zambia. Good for you. <laughs> I like Zambia, we work there. It's good place. Okay. Go ahead. Well, we can talk more if you want. But. <laughs> but Go ahead, but what's my, your second question? My, sec my second question is, uh, you, there are certain things that you said, uh, for example, that in America, if, you, if uh, they closed 10... Um, uh, yeah? Coal-fired yeah. plants. Yes. Um, it could make a difference. 10%. My, my question is, why didn't you do it when you were in office? And, um, and also, um, why is it that sitting presidents, sitting leaders in any country um, uh, don't necessarily take those hard choices and decisions that are required? And then when they're out of there, they're really able to speak about it. Is there something in there that makes it? Only partly, that's a good question. But there's actually a very specific answer to that. I, my administration had a lot to do with negotiating the Kyoto Accord. But when we did it in the United States, prevailing opinion was no country can get rich, stay rich, or get richer unless you put more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The United States Senate, in a rare show of bipartisanship, don't let people oversell this bipartisanship to you voted 95 to 0 to reject the Kyoto Treaty before I even sent it to them. And they accused me with a straight face of trying to break the American economy, destroy America's future. So the answer to your question is, I couldn't do that. But I'll give you to try to show my bona fides. 33 years ago, when I was a young governor, I made my state the first state after California to give the utilities the ability to finance energy efficiency and let ratepayers pay for it with their utility bills. And the utility fought me for 30 years, even after I was long gone, until this last year when they hired the biggest utility in my state, finally hired the lawyers I had 30 years ago to say Bill Clinton was right and we want to do this. So sometimes you've got to have a lot of patience here. It takes, you can't change this stuff overnight. So that's what happened. If you, we did everything we could to raise car mileage standards, to pass the Kyoto Accord, to, uh, I did protect more forests in the continental United States as carbon sinks than any American presidents in 100 years. And that's made a big difference. Ironically, my forests are now being destroyed not by tree cutters, but by the pine beetles, which, because of global warming, has moved so far north in America, it's destroying trees that can't resist it. 
But it's the reason is what Machiavelli said in the 15th century. You ought to go back and read Machiavelli. He was a smart fellow. <laughs> there is nothing so difficult in all of human affairs than to change the established order of things. Because those who will lose from a new arrangement are certain of their loss, while those who will benefit are uncertain of their gain. In other words, this deal we're dealing with, that, that, that's why it's always hard to make change. And that's why I told you earlier, going back, when I left, I was so, I was just bummed out by the 95 to 0 vote against the Kyoto Accord. I thought it was a good treaty and the best we could do under the circumstances. And I realized that they were, the great French writer Victor Hugo once said, there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. The sort of flip side corollary is, there is nothing so destructive as an idea whose time has come and gone and no one has noticed yet. <laughs> and so basically, it's not just naked economic self-interest that has paralyzed the world on climate change. It's the lack of creative evidence that there is a better way out there. And so that's why I'm trying to do this. The other answer to your question about the, all the other people who are in power, by the way, is this. When you are in office, you spend your time doing two things, what you ran for office to do and said you would do, and dealing with the incoming fire. You also should have a third track, which is what are the long-term problems of the country and how are you doing it. But the people you elect are not necessarily dictators, and most of us don't want dictators. So the people did to, the American people did to President Obama what they did to me. They let us serve two years. They believed every bad thing the Republicans said about us. They gave the Republicans a Congress. And then they said, it's like when the, the famous magician Houdini drowned in his water-filled thing, right? They said, okay, we put you in a water-filled tank. Why can't you get out? In other words, the public has to take some responsibility here, too. If you want these leaders to make these changes, they have to be given the political support and the political partners necessary to affect those changes. If it is possible for them to do something and they don't do it, then you can rightly criticize them for not doing it. But if it is not possible and some action of the people have made it less likely, then we just need to try to help them figure out how to get out of the fix they're in instead of blaming them for a circumstance not entirely of their own making. It's a wonderful question, Amanda, and I think President Obama has come to this realization. You may be familiar that his campaign slogan was, Yes, We Can, and after several years of trying to work with in a system that uh, has its shortcomings, his new slogan is, we can't wait. <laughs> Hence the executive orders and things of that nature. Well, thank you all so much for your attendance. I think that we should slightly change the name of this from a conversation to a master class. I know you're on your way to Africa after you visit with Lord Rothschild. What should you be doing there?
Same, same? Yeah, I'm going, <laughs> I'm going to South Africa. I always try to go around Mandela's birthday so we can, and it's his 93rd birthday Wonderful. next week. So I, I try to see him as close around that day as I can, and uh, he's gone up home. So I'm going up to his home village, and then we're going to do some things to honor the day. And then I'm going to look at some of my projects in South Africa and um, Mozambique and Tanzania, I mean, and, and, and Rwanda. And then I'm going up to Uganda where we have got a really exciting healthcare project going. Be interesting. And what are you reading? What am I reading? Mm -hmm. I just finished reading uh, on a book that only Americans probably would read, but it's fascinating. It's called Our Divided Political Heart by E.J. Dion, who I think is one of our most thoughtful public philosophers, and it's the best book he's written in 20 years, in my opinion, since he wrote a book called Why Americans Hate Politics. And I highly recommend it. And I read a fabulous novel by Adam uh, Alan Johnson about North Korea. It's an incredible flight of the imagination called The Orphan Master's Son, which I highly recommend. Those are the best I can do right here later. <laughs> Everything else, I've been reading a lot about American economics. I won't bore you with that because it's not necessarily prevalent, but those two books are really good. And is there anything else in closing you'd like to say? No, I thank you for your time today, and thank you for your questions. Um, I would like to say, you know, just one other thing, that there is a positive element to the negative uh, aspect that the last questioner quite properly pointed out, which is that when you get, when you're out of office or when you never were there in the first place, you can pick one or two things and you can go after it like a laser beam. And if you do it in a way that proves A, there's an answer, and B, it's a good thing, you create space for the political system to absorb it or for the private sector to copy it. The great thing about being alive and active at this moment in history is that the NGO movement has more power in the hands of private citizens to do public good than ever before. Doesn't mean government doesn't matter, it does. It doesn't mean that government can use that as an excuse, it shouldn't. But you should never forget that when you hire someone to take any sort of public job, they should be dealing with these long-term problems, but they're also trying to do what they said to get themselves elected and they're trying to deal with the incoming fire. And the NGO movement has a way of both supporting as well as holding more accountable the political process and convincing the private sector that there may be economically viable ways to advance the public interest. All of this is something that is not new, but the magnitude of the impact you can have is new. Technology alone has enabled people who could give five pounds to raise 50 million pounds, or 500 million pounds for that matter, if everybody agreed that the same thing needed to be done at the same time. 
So I think you should leave here feeling that with all the world's problems and with all the uncertainty because of this financial crisis, there is still more potential in your hands and in your minds and in the alliances you can make than ever before in human history. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President, and traveling mercies.